Matthew 13, 24 through 50. The passage begins on page 972 in the Pew Bibles. Matthew 13, 24 through 50. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." Father, Jesus says to us here that those of us who have ears should hear. And I pray tonight that you would give us ears 
to hear what your son says to us. Give me a mouth to speak it rightly. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the real blessings and challenges of sermon preparation is often finding the appropriate illustrations that will shed light on the text of Scripture that you're trying to explain, to take scriptural principles that are written on the page and then to put flesh on them, as it were, by use of pictures from everyday life that help, un- help us understand what the Bible is saying. So, for instance, on Sunday, I compared the gates of heaven to the customs desk in a foreign airport, right? Trying to illustrate how important it is to be sure that your name is in the record books of the kingdom in which you are trying to enter. God gave me that illustration, but they're not always that easy to come by. And yet here we remember that Jesus is the master at this, isn't he? Jesus is the master of word pictures, of illustrations that let us into spiritual realities. And so tonight, he's done all the work for me, hasn't he? I don't have to think of the illustrations, the word pictures tonight. Tonight, Jesus has already given us a whole host of pictures from everyday life with which to work. Weed and tares, fish and nets, bread and leaven, and so on. And they're all so poignant and so colorful and so helpful, aren't they? What Jesus says here is striking and memorable. If you've read these passages before, you probably do remember some of these very pictures that Jesus paints here. And as we read, you may have noticed that he gave six of them in these verses, six word pictures, six illustrations. But I think those six can be grouped in really into three sets of two. In other words, there are really just three spiritual concepts that Jesus is teaching here, three spiritual truths that he wants us to understand. And he uses two different pictures, two different illustrations, two different parables to explain each of them. One truth that we'll see is the exclusivity of heaven. The exclusivity of heaven from the parable of the wheat and the tares and the parable of the dragnet. Not everyone is going to heaven. Another truth that we'll see is the surprise of heaven from the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. That heaven seems to start out small, the kingdom of God seems to start out small, and yet it will be bigger than we might imagine. And then thirdly, Jesus is teaching about the value of heaven from the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. The exclusivity of heaven, the surprise of heaven, the value of heaven. And I want us just to think about each of those three and see if we can decipher what Jesus is trying to say to us in all of these parables. So first of all, let's look at those two parables that teach the exclusivity of heaven. The two parables, again, are the wheat and the tares and the dragnet. The wheat and the tares we read about in verses 24 through 30, and then Jesus explained it to his disciples beginning in verse 37, and then at the end of our passage, 47 through 50, he says the same sorts of things using the picture of a dragnet catching fish. And both of these little vignettes illustrate one primary truth. 
Not everyone is going to heaven. Some people are wheat, but others are tares who will be thrown into the fire. Some people are good keeper kind of fish. Others are fish that are going to be thrown out. Not everyone's going to heaven. That's the point. Yes, all sorts of people intermingle here on earth. No, there is not right now a physical separation between God's people and the devil's people. We all grow in the same field. We all swim in the same sea. We all work in the same offices and live on the same streets. But a day is coming when it will be very obvious that there are two distinct groups of people in the world, right? Those who belong to Christ and those who belong to the devil. And one group, Jesus says, will be gathered into God's barn gathered into God's cooler, if you will, from the fish story, and the other group will be thrown into the fire. Heaven is an exclusive place, and not everyone, Jesus says, is going there. And the fact that not everyone is going to heaven should be of no surprise to us. First of all, we considered this at length already on Sunday morning, didn't we, from Matthew chapter 7. But we also see this in our everyday lives. Not everyone is living the kind of life where it's obvious that they are walking heavenward. We may be exasperated at that sometimes, at how many lost souls we see around us. We may even say sometimes to the Lord of the harvest, as the folks say here, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Why does so much gospel effort seem to go out into our world and there seems to be so little gospel fruit, so many people who don't have ears to hear? Those are legitimate questions, right? If you're asking that, why are there so many people who don't want to turn to you, Lord? That's a good question. It reflects in your heart that you want to see more wheat gathered into the Lord's barn. But the fact remains that though God's reasons are a mystery to us, he does not save everyone. He allows the devil to have his own catch, if you will. And Jesus says God allows his fish and the devils to swim side by side in the same waters. He allows his wheat and the devil's tares to grow together in the same field. Now, before we carry on, let me correct a mistake that is commonly made in interpreting the parable of the wheat and the tares here. It's sometimes thought that this passage is a reminder to us that the church of Jesus Christ will always be a mixed bag. So people often say, based on this passage, well, you know, there will always be ungodly people in the church. There will always be tares on the membership roster mixed in with the wheat, and so we have to accept that and move on. In fact, verses 28 and 29, if we try to do anything about that, if we try to uproot the tares, we may actually uproot some of the true believers. And so we just have to stand back and accept the fact that there are always tares in God's church. Now, it may be true that there will always be bad apples mixed in the church's bushel basket. There may always be secret unbelievers in the membership of the visible church, but I want you to note well that that's not what Matthew 13 is talking about. Because notice what Jesus says in verse 38. The field is the world. Beginning in verse 37, he is explaining to his disciples what this picture of wheat and tares means. And he says to us, the field in which they are growing side by side is the world. He's not talking about the church here with wheat and tares mixed in. He's talking about the world. 
The place where the wheat and tares grow together is not supposed to be in the membership of the church. It's supposed to be out in the world, in the workplace, on the softball team, in the schoolhouse, and so on. In the world, the wheat and the tares are mixed, and that's normal, Jesus says. But in terms of who makes up the membership of Christ's church, though it may be, sadly, that wheat and tares are often mixed together, it should not be. That is to say that while we want unbelievers, yes, in our services, we want them to come and and benefit from the gospel and the fellowship, we ought at the same time not automatically assume that everyone is a believer and should be a member of the church. We ought not to treat people who don't yet believe in Jesus as though they were part of Christ's body until they've actually come to real faith in Christ. In fact, just five chapters over from here in Matthew 18, Jesus is going to teach about compassionately removing the tares from inside his church. So what are verses 28 through 30 saying then? When the farmhands ask if they should uproot the tares out from among among the wheat, and the landowner says no, allow both to grow together, if that's not about the church, what is it about? Well, it's about the world, and the implication is simply that it is not God's plan in this life to eradicate unbelievers from the earth. There will always be the devil's people around God's people. It's not God's plan to eradicate unbelievers from the earth, nor is it his plan to remove believers in this age from the midst of the world either. The wheat and the tares are grown together, verse 30. God has left us in the field of this world. He's left us in the gym, in the cubicle, in the coffee house, rubbing shoulders with unbelievers, growing up alongside those who don't know the Lord, growing up alongside the tares. And though Jesus doesn't say it here specifically, surely one of the reasons God has left us there is because, as St. Augustine wisely reminds us, those who are tares today may be wheat tomorrow. God lets us all grow together, at least one reason, so that we who are wheat might win some of the tares to Christ. The fact remains, however, that not everyone will be saved. That's what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus does hold out the possibility that some who look for a time like wheat may actually be among those who are not. Notice verse 26. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. You see what he's saying there? How do you tell the difference between the wheat and the tares? Well, the time when you can tell is when it's time for the wheat to produce fruit, to produce grain. Some of it produces and some of it doesn't. And then you know the difference between the two. God's servants may for a time not be able to tell the difference always between the wheat and the tares. In fact, The commentator R.T. France says that the tares here probably refer to a grain called darnel, which in its early stages looks almost identical to wheat. And just the same, the Bible has a category for people that look for a while almost identical to believers, but who eventually prove not to be because they don't produce fruit. Jesus speaks about them in the famous parable of the four soils earlier in this chapter. There are some people who carry on for a while seeming to be believers but fall away when trials come or slip back into worldly pleasures and pursuits. 
And what's the difference between the false believers and the true one? Well, it's the same as between wheat and tares. Wheat produces grain, fruit. Tares do not. When the time came for the crops to produce fruit in verse 26, the tares became evident because they didn't produce any. And so it goes with the almost Christian. Outwardly, she may say the right things, he may go the right places and look the part, but over time, it becomes clear that he or she is not producing fruit. He's not becoming holy. She's not impacting her family for Christ. He's not contributing to the joy and spirituality of the local body. And there is a difference between the wheat and the tares. Now, as with our passage on Sunday, someone may say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. All this talk about producing fruit and going to heaven, but doesn't Ephesians 2 say, verses 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of works? Yes. But verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So no, we don't become new creations in Christ Jesus. We don't become Christians by good works, but by God's grace. But we do become Christians. We do become new in Christ Jesus for good works. And anyone who's truly been born again will therefore produce grain, fruit. So though one doesn't become a Christian by good works, one does indeed prove him or herself to be a Christian by good works. That's the thrust of verse 26. Wheat eventually sprouts and produces grain. And it is those stalks that produce grain, that produce fruit, who will eventually be gathered into God's barn. And then there's a flip side of this first point. Not everyone is going to heaven. Only those who are true believers, fruit-bearing believers. And the flip side of that is, if not everyone is going to heaven, then some people are, Jesus says, going to Hell. Verse 42, the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same thing in verse 50. Now that should sober us. It should sober us for those bad fish who are swimming in the sea with us who don't know the Lord or don't know him yet. And it should sober us for ourselves. There is a a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is a furnace of fire. We should be sober about that. We should ask ourselves often, am I sure that I'm on my way to heaven? When the harvest time comes, am I sure, are you sure that you'll be gathered in with the wheat to the Father's barn? When the dragnet of time is finally pulled ashore, are you certain that you won't be one of those who will be cast away with the bad fish? Are you certain, not that you've simply grown up around some pretty tall wheat stalks, but that you're wheat yourself? And if you're not, would you make sure tonight, once again, by coming to Christ for the forgiveness and the new life that he alone can produce in you, and that alone will make you prepared for heaven. So that's the first thing, the exclusivity of heaven. Heaven, the kingdom of heaven, only comes to those who are true disciples of Jesus. But now secondly, and more briefly, let's also think about the surprise of heaven. From those two parables that Jesus gives in verses 31 through 33, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field 
And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Both of these parables, I say, teach us the surprise of heaven. The first set of parables was intended to rattle us. This second set is intended to encourage us. And in both of these two word pictures in verses 31 through 33, Jesus is saying, in effect, don't despise the day of small things. Don't be discouraged by the tiny or unimpressive beginnings of God's kingdom work whether in your life or in your church or in the world at large. Heaven will reveal a great deal more progress than these small beginnings seem to promise. Isn't that what he's saying? Heaven will be much bigger than the seed would appear to create. Let's look at a little bit more closely at these two examples that Jesus gives. The first is that of a mustard seed. If you were to plant a vegetable garden... You might include a number of things, but maybe mustard greens would not be at the top of your list. If you're from where I'm from, you would like greens, but perhaps you don't. But if you did, you might be in for a big surprise. You go to the store and you buy your little packet of mustard seeds, and those seeds might be some of the smallest ones that you would scatter into the garden. But the plant would end up being roughly 10 feet tall. And so it is, says Jesus, with the kingdom of God. God's work here on the earth may sometimes seem to be almost nothing when compared to all of the world's noise and ambitions. But just wait. The last day will surprise you. The same lesson may be learned by watching a lady make bread, Jesus says. She needs and works the dough into a a grapefruit-sized lump, and she drops it into the pan and slides it into the oven or the bread maker today, the bread machine. And her husband walks up and looks over her shoulders and says, how is that little lump going to turn into a big enough loaf to feed all the gathered guests that are coming tonight? So she reaches out her hand, and in the palm of her hand is a little pinch of yeast, right? And she says to him, well, this little pinch of stuff is going to make this bread triple in size. And he says in a know-it-all tone of voice, it doesn't seem possible to me. We'll see about that. But she's right, isn't she? That's how it works. And again, the same is true of the kingdom of heaven. Nobody sat up and noticed when God set his sights on a man named Abraham and began to speak directly to his family. That was just a little pinch of yeast. How could that mean anything? Not many people paid attention to the little muddy stall in Bethlehem either or to the tiny baby laid there in the feed trough. And who would have thought that 12 uneducated, untrained, unsophisticated Jewish men could have begun a movement that now spans every nation on the globe? They didn't have a backing organization. They didn't have any wealthy benefactors. They didn't advertise. They didn't have a 10-year master plan. All they had was their Bibles and instructions to go and tell. And untold millions of people will be in heaven from those very tiny beginnings. 
And that's a word of encouragement to us in our own setting, I think. We have only begun to scratch the surface of reaching our city and our neighborhood with the gospel of Jesus. And the work of doing that is often slow. Hearts upon which we sow the seed often seem either to be hard or dull. And so the task of winning our neighbors and our city to Jesus may sometimes seem to us almost impossible from a human perspective. We aren't very great in numbers. We aren't great in influence. We don't have corporate dollars backing us financially. In some ways, all we have are our Bibles and instructions to go and tell. And how much can we really accomplish with such paltry beginnings? Well, a great deal, actually, right? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown... It is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Do you believe that? And will you be about, silly as it may seem in the day of small things, will you be about planting your mustard seeds? That's the surprise of heaven. Many more people will be there than the current state of affairs may seem to reveal. And the impact of your little witness will be much larger than you may think or ever even dream it to be. The surprise of heaven. And thirdly, let's think about the value of heaven from those two parables in verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. The value of heaven. These two parables teach us that heaven's value may be discovered by the fact that men and women are willing to leverage everything they own in order to gain it. A man is walking in a field, and he runs across a pot of gold stashed in a cave. And he looks around and begins to think, what should I do about this? I can't steal it, but I've got to have the treasure in this field. What am I going to do? Jesus says he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Did you hear that? He sells all that he has. Gaining heaven is worth more Gaining the treasure is worth more, far more, than all of our accumulated possessions and pleasures on earth. Someone will say, perhaps like the rich young ruler, well, it's easy to say that I would sell everything I have to gain a treasure if I don't have a lot. But I have a lot to lose. I'm not sure I'm willing to give up everything in order to follow Jesus, everything in order to gain heaven. And if you think like that, then you should notice the second example here in verses 45 through 46, because here we have a jewelry merchant. The commentator John Broadus tells us that the Greek word for merchant here refers to, quote, not a mere shopkeeper, but one who travels to procure what he sells. And along the same lines, R.T. France calls this man a substantial trader, not a local retailer. And then another commentator, William Hendrickson, comments that pearls generally 
obtained, were generally obtained from the Persian Gulf or from the Indian Ocean were fabulously priced far beyond the purchasing power of the average person. Only the rich could afford them. So what does all that tell us? When we think about the value of pearls and the fact that this man was a substantial trader in them, well, it tells us that this guy is not the manager at the local Jared Galleria. This is a man who is a major player in very high-end jewelry. Think Tiffany and company. He has the wherewithal to buy fine pearls. He has the wherewithal to travel around looking for these things that only the rich can afford. And surely his bank account must reflect the tremendous amount of money that would be made by those who are in this trade of selling, buying and selling fine pearls. And so this is a man who, if he is to sell all he has, has a lot to lose. But here he is one day walking through a splendid bazaar. Maybe we imagine him somewhere in Arabia. And he sees all the sights and the sounds and the smells of this shopping place. And then he stumbles upon the biggest, brightest, richest looking pearl he has ever seen. And this is what he does for a living, right? If this is a man who does this for a living and this is the pearl of great value, what is he going to do? Well, he does the same thing as the man who found the treasure in the field, right? Wealthy as he probably is, he's willing to sell it all. He's willing to sell his entire jewelry business to gain this one pearl of great value. And all of this, again, is teaching us something about the value of heaven. You see what Jesus is saying? No amount of earthly happiness, no amount of earthly gain can compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us. In heaven, nothing you possess, nor even all that you possess combined, is anywhere near as valuable as being a part of God's kingdom, even if you're one of these rich jewelry store owners. And when Jesus says that all that we have, all that we can have, is not comparable to the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about sinful happiness or ill gotten gain. He's saying here that even the honest pleasures of this life, cannot hold a candle to the treasures of heaven and that those who truly believe that are willing to venture everything in order to gain it. He says elsewhere that people are willing to leave father, mother, houses, farms, even to give up life itself for his sake, for the sake of Christ. Now, of course, you can't earn heaven by selling all your stuff or abandoning everything that's precious to you. You can't earn heaven at all, can you? It comes as a gift to those who put their trust in Jesus. But the point is, what if trusting in Jesus requires leaving some things behind? It always does, doesn't it? What if trusting in Jesus means forfeiting some things that you've previously held dear? Is gaining Christ and living forever with him in his kingdom worth it? That's the question. Are the treasures of heaven more valuable to you than even your greatest joys on this earth? Well, to get at the answer, we need to ask, what are the treasures of heaven? Are we looking for a pot of gold or a magnificent pearl? Streets of gold and pearly gates? When we think of the treasures of heaven, do we think of the absence of arthritis or cancer or smoke and fire? We think of a family reunion to end all family reunions. 
If that's all you're looking for, you'll never venture everything to gain it. If that is all you're anticipating in heaven, you haven't even begun to see the greatness and the beauty that will be there. What are the treasures of heaven, really? These other things will be there, some of them, and it will be wonderful, but what are the the great treasures? Well, an eternity in the presence of the risen Christ, right? An eternity serving him without the irons of sin around your ankles, An eternity of fellowship and conversation with the saints of God. We talked about tonight in the praise time how wonderful that is, right? What about an eternity of that where it never has to end and you never have to go back to work on Monday morning? What about an eternity in a place where everyone loves God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength? An eternity of being ravished by the love of our bridegroom. Is that the kind of joy for which you're longing? Does that sound like something that you would trade all your worldly possessions and pleasures for? I hope so. But the proof, of course, is always in the pudding, isn't it? The proof is in whether or not you're truly willing to venture all for the sake of gaining heaven and storing up treasures there. So ask yourself tonight, does my life really look like these two men spoken of in verses 44 through 46? Are eternal things really my highest joy and my chief aim? On what do I spend my money? Where does my free time go? About what do I get most excited? What's really important to me? Am I spending my time and energy and affection polishing my little collection of fine earthly pearls? Or am I pursuing the pearl of great value? Maybe you can just ask yourself a question like this. If God called me to give up blank... For the sake of everlasting joy in heaven, would I do it? You know it goes in the blank for you, don't you? Fill in the blank and ask yourself, if God asked me to give up X for the sake of everlasting joy in heaven, would I do it? If God asked me to give up X simply so that I would store up more treasure in heaven, would I do it? Your answer will go a long way in showing you how much you value heaven. So there you have the lessons of these parables, the exclusivity of heaven, the surprise of heaven, the value of heaven. And I want to close now just very briefly by reminding you of the king of heaven. If we find ourselves on the wrong side of the exclusivity of heaven, what do we do? If we've listened tonight and said, I am not yet one of those people who is going to heaven, what do I do? Do I try with all my might to make myself produce good fruit? Or do I turn to Jesus, who alone can make weed out of tares? Or if we find ourselves discouraged in the Lord's work, if we find ourselves unable to see with faith the surprise of heaven, unable to see how our little mustard seed will ever become a great plant, where do we turn? Do we continue to look at our circumstances? And redouble our efforts? Well, we may need to work harder, but isn't it mostly that we need to look to Jesus, who lived and died in relative obscurity in ancient Israel, and who left his mission in the hands of twelve sinful bumblers, and yet who has accomplished the salvation of all of his people for all time? Talk about a mustard seed turning into a great plant, right? That's where we look if we're discouraged, to the, the king of heaven, to Jesus. 
And if we find ourselves underestimating the value of heaven, what's the solution to that? Do we simply tell ourselves again and again like a mantra, you need to value heaven, you need to value heaven, you need to pursue the pearl of great price, heaven is a treasure, until it finally goes into our heads? Or might the solution to undervaluing heaven be to look at Jesus, who is heaven's crown jewel? To look at him who lived with such love and compassion, him who died in our place, him who is risen from the dead, him who sits at the right hand of the Father, and to ask ourselves, is there anything in this world that really outweighs an eternity with him? How do we prepare for the kingdom of heaven? How do we lay up treasures in the kingdom of heaven? How do we begin to think rightly about the kingdom of heaven? We do it by looking to and walking with and trusting and loving the king of heaven.